there, and thank you for tuning in to Pierre Pressure Podcast. I'm so thankful that you chose this platform. Thank you for joining me on my platform. However you got here, clickety-clicking your way over to Pierre Pressure. This is the podcast where I talk to musicians, music makers, artistic type people about their journey and how they've gotten to where they are and what has kind of guided them to make art and music and how that connects to politics because I believe that all of life is political, all our choices are political in a sense and I'm enjoying talking to people about how that connects to their musical expression. So for this episode it was couldn't be more perfect. I spoke to Chris Wells who is an actor, singer, facilitator of artistic ecstatic expression. He has an organization called The Secret City that he has founded and been nurturing for years and years. The Secret City has been described as an art church, which is sort of a a reductive and easy way to describe it. It is a performance event happening that tries to take the community of spiritual congregation and base it on art so we talked a lot about what that means why do people need that connection to something greater than them or outside of themselves and how does that connect to art for me this was a really fascinating way to make sense of my trajectory as a person who has always strived for community and for connection with people through art and at various times in my life through religious expression and what does that mean now and I find that Chris really perfectly encapsulates it and really gets what it's all about and we had a great time talking about that and also about politics because like me I think Chris believes that everything is political and that there that every choice you make is political in nature, especially if you're an artist, and that we all have various ways of navigating that reality. So during this conversation, I got to hear about his whole process, starting in California, where he was born, and his journey through Saudi Arabia, where he briefly lived, and back to LA and New York, and being in the Actors Gang, and starting Christie and the No-Nos, and a bunch of his other projects, culminating in The Secret City. Chris also is a DJ on Kingston Radio. He has the Secret City Radio Hour. He interviewed me recently. If you're interested at all, go check it out. This is kind of like a reciprocal conversation with him. It kind of rounds out the talk quite well. Things are moving quickly in the world of politics and current events, so all of these podcasts are rooted in a specific time And whatever's happening that day in politics is usually what I'm obsessed with or I'm concerned with. So I know that that is going to date this podcast at some point for any listeners who want it to be, you know, up to the minute. But I don't really mind because I think it's a time capsule. And it's also the themes we talk about don't really change much. They're pretty universal. So things are always changing in our political world. Right now, as I record this, It looks like the Democratic primary is sort of narrowing down to four candidates. And liberals are in a giant panic about how to represent the change that they know has to happen. 
Basically, it's Biden versus Bernie slash Warren. I'm firmly in the Bernie slash Warren camp, and I always have been. It's fun for me to watch America sort of shift its way of thinking towards where I've always sat as a person who grew up in France and a person who has seen, you know, the not scary side of socialism, the good for your life, good for everybody side of it. I've existed in it and it's awesome. So we need that here. As an example of how long things take to kind of shift over, today in New York City, plastic bag ban went into effect. It's the most exciting thing I could ever think of. I can't even stand how psyched I am about it. I went to the supermarket today. There was not a single plastic bag in sight and all the people there were trying to navigate their way around, you know, bringing their own bags or using bags that were for sale there. And I heard a lot of grumbling. People were mad that they had to pay for plastic bags. And, you know, you've always been paying for plastic bags anyway. The, the supermarket owns them. They have to buy them. They're charging you for them somehow through their prices. And you're paying for it by destroying your ocean. You're going to be eating plastic tuna in like 100 years anyway. So you're going to be paying for it. So it's just fantastic that we've done this thing in New York State. People are like children. They won't really change unless you make them, unless it hurts. I don't mean physically hurts, but unless, you know, they feel the, the consequence of not doing it. In this case, they have to pay for bags. So they're going to start bringing their own bags. I'm going to start bringing extra bags to the supermarket so I can give them to people because I'm so happy that... This is what's happening now in New York. So anyway, a little bright spot in our crazy world. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Wells from The Secret City. He's a real gem of a guy, and we had a good time talking. So check it out. I think of you as a high priest of art. Wow. Because you're tall <laughs> and you make people high with your art. I thought you were going to say, and you appear high <laughs> well, all too. the time. That too. <laughs> uh, thank you. I um, I take that as a high compliment. Great. I, I think in many ways that's what I aspire to be. Yeah. So you have this amazing uh, amalgamation of theater, music, and I don't want to say religion, like ecstasy, ecstatic performance. Yeah. And it's really, really fascinating and really well executed. Wow. Thank you. Um, And so I just, I I want to get into all of it and figure out how, what it all means to you and (laughs) (laughs) where it all comes from. It's it's, great. It's great. But we're going to do something different this time. I'm just going to start right off with a song. Oh, and we're going to listen to. Sinead O'Connor's Famine, oh. which is a song you picked. It is. That has deep significance. Yeah, it's one of my... Th- th- this is one of my all-time favorite albums. And uh, I count her as one of my most influential artists. And I think this track is extraordinary. All right, let's listen to it. Okay, okay I want to talk about Ireland. Specifically, I want to talk about the famine about the fact that there never really was one. There was no famine. See, Irish people were only allowed to eat potatoes. All of the other food, meat, fish, vegetables, were shipped out of the country under armed guard to England while the Irish people starved. 
And then, in the middle of all this, they gave us money not to teach our children Irish. And so we lost our history, and this is what I think is still hurting me. You see, we're like a child that's being battered, has to drive itself out of its head because it's frightened, still feels all the painful feelings. But they lose contact with the memory, and this leads to massive self-destruction, alcoholism, drug addiction, all desperate attempts at running and in its worst form becomes actual killing. And if there ever is gonna be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving so that there then can be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. says you mustn't kill more than 10% of a nation because to do so causes permanent psychological damage. It's not permanent, but they didn't know that. Anyway, during the supposed famine, we lost a lot more than 10% of our nation through deaths on land or in ships of emigration. But what finally broke us was not starvation, but its use in the controlling of our education. Schools go on about Black 47, on and on about the terrible famine. But what they don't say is in truth, there really never was one. Excuse me, lonely people. Sorry, excuse me. What do they all come from? I can tell you in one word. All the lonely people. What do they all So let's take a look, shall we? The highest statistics of child abuse in the EEC, and we say we're a Christian country, but we've lost contact with our history. See, we used to worship God as a mother. We're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Look at all our old men in the pubs. Look at all our young people on drugs. We used to worship God as a mother. Now look at what we're doing to each other. We've even made killers of ourselves, the most childlike trusting people in the universe. And this is what's wrong with us. Our history books, the parent figures lied to us. I see the Irish as a race like a child that got itself bashed in the face. And if there ever is gonna be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving so that there then can be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. Oh, people. Jack Lynch. What the heck is that? From 
1970. It must have something to do with the IRA, the troubles. God bless Sinead for speaking out. I mean, somebody talk about somebody who lives on the edge of reality and sort of our accepted reality and whatever non-reality she's tuning into. It's, what do you mean by that? Well, you think I she's... mean, like, that sort of idea of, like, you know, she has real trouble. She's had real mental health problems and real challenges and sort of with sanity and living in this world. And, and yet, you know, that's also what I'm sure it's a lot of what informs her art, art and artistry and her interests. And don't you think, I think sometimes that's the only logical response to being really sensitive to how bad things can be. Yeah. How things are set up in this society. Yeah. It's like heartbreak. Yeah. There's this, there's this work I'm doing right now called somatic experiencing. And it's a, it's a modality for recovering from trauma, but it's predicated on the idea that there are three responses to trauma. We've always known there's fight or flight. Mm. But the third one, which is actually much more common, is freeze. freeze. That what most people do is they numb. Most people live a life that it's like, oh, well, you have to get along and you have to perform to an extent. And then so that for makes... somebody to have that kind of, you know, she's like a live wire responding to the insane world we live in which i think a lot of artists are that makes so much sense when you talk about that freeze because that's a really uh people are starting to understand that that's a that's what really happens when you're like attacked or in the sense of like sexual um you know uh attacks or assault yeah. people freeze people don't turn into wonder woman you know you and know? that's what i know i think it's <laughs> a huge i don't know if it's Discovery, but this guy Peter Levine, who codified somatic experiencing, it was in studying animals. They were like, "Well, yeah, we've always had this this binary understanding of fight or flight, but really, what most socialized creatures do is they just stop, you, or try to act normal. Yeah, like nothing's you happening. Just, you act normal, yeah. or you. It's so much of why when you you know it's like, oh, that person said something horrible to me, and then. Later on, I realized how what I would have done, or I should right. have punched that guy, or you know. There's a great French expression, esprit d'escalier. Yeah, you know esprit that. d'escalier. Yeah. Exa- I think this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I wish I had said right. that perfect bon mot, you know, the perfect response, but most so, of us don't have that. Yeah, so getting back to someone like Sinead O'Connor, or artists who are able to take that trauma and turn it into action, is pretty uh, remarkable. So she... Got a lot of shit for it, obviously. She ripped up the picture of the Pope and did, did all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, got t- got called a crazy person um, often. That's why, like, it, it makes me uncomfortable to say, oh, a person who speaks out about what's going on in the world has mental illness issues. Just necessarily. It's so easy. I'm well, not saying you said that. But... I know. I do think it's, I do think it's, you know, there's a spectrum like there is with everything. And... I I don't think I think she's actually I do think she has had incredibly rational maybe not rational but understandable responses to really fucked up things yeah. right 
it's you know what's that quote about like to respond sanely to an unsane world something like that yes. you know it's like it's not a sign of health right to actually get along with really insane conditions i love this choice because i always love it when someone who's really popular who really breaks into mainstream does something like this really brave and that will totally sabotage your career if you let it <laughs> or it, it can it yeah. probably did and i just love it when artists who are truly uh you know, popular and have so much to lose, do this. I mean, if I do it, it's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to lose 10 listeners. <laughs> I mean, to go on SNL and tear up the picture of the Pope. Right. Um, so Radical. there's so much, there's so much meat in that song. There's, yeah. There's the thing about the army regulation and the 10%. If you, so I just read a book called Slaughterhouse Five, a, a Vonnegut book. Kurt just, Vonnegut. Yeah, I just yeah. reread it. He lived through the bombing of Dresden yeah, where 135,000 people were killed mm. in, in two hours. It, it's like way, way more death in a short time than Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Wow. And, you know, it was done by the Americans. Yeah. Um, and I, th I don't know if that regulation came about after that bombing where yeah. they said, oh, we might have overdone it there. Because if you kill, like they said, 10% of a country's population, they're no good anymore. They're yeah. just basically done. They're just... They're worthless. Yeah, when every time I hear that, I think about you know the Native American population, right. which I think was twenty million people. Right. When uh, you know when the the real white man uh, sweep across the continent was hap began. Sure. And I think it's I don't know what's the Native population now under four million probably something like that. And in, another thing that's that there's a parallel with Native American situation is that. She talks about how they were not allowed to learn Irish, yeah. their language. And I feel like that happens now where we have, we live in all these states and cities and towns that have Native American names and we have no idea what they mean. Yeah. It drives me insane. Yeah. Like, we should be required to learn a little basic, you know, Native American language in school. Yeah. We're living on this land that they named, yeah. you know, like well, why is... Well, also, you know, there's the whole, you know, these stories of children being taken from villages and sent to white schools you know like the white man's schools and sure. deprived of their language and deprived of their culture and i i like to think that that is being healed the thing the reason i picked this song mm -hmm. aside from loving this song when you i think your prompt was two songs with political uh significance or content mm -hmm. um I think this song's a perfect example of somebody who is trying to say through her art that we must confront the past. That in order for us as a, whether you're Irish, whether you're American, whether you're human or, you know, whatever continent or culture, cult, country you live in, mm -hmm. this reckoning that this song is about, like the refrain is, you know, and unless there's remembering, there won't be healing. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are living in a crisis, right? That The crisis we are in is a lot about that. Absolutely. Right? 100%. Yeah. About dealing with how we've treated the Native Americans, how we've... Uh, slavery, and now what we're doing, how it continues to go on. Yeah. It hasn't really quite been healed. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back. So now we just... Through we jumped right into that into that hot tub, but let's yeah. go back and talk about 
Chris Wells. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> you do you have a an organization called the Secret City yeah. that you started that's like I said, like I accused you before of being the high priest of art. Uh-huh. I think it's a an ecstatic I've heard you don't like to use the word religious, but it's almost like a church service for healing through art and music. That's right. Is that correct? Yeah. I um I like to say, you know, the shorthand is a lot of people call the Secret City a church of art, mm-hmm. or they call it art church, which mm-hmm. I do too. I mean, that is how I think of it. When I started it, I was fascinated, you know, my two sort of driving fascinations were art and art makers and theater and performance, where I found real my real values, and but also the form of a spiritual practice or religious service. And it was the height of the Bush two era in New York. You remember what that was like. And it was horrible. It was. I mean, we're living in a different kind of horror now. Yeah. That was horrible too. Yeah. And I, and I was particularly mm, triggered. I don't know what the word is, but I was particularly aware of the real impact of fundamentalism. And and I started thinking, what does church give people that sustains them? Instead of just like, oh, those people are dumb or that, you know, that's not my world. I was interested, I guess the driving question is, what would church look like if it was actually about art? So I combined kind of a typical, the elements of a typical Protestant religious service but the content is all art so the form is very familiar to people there's a choir there's a live band there's uh you know there's a program that looks like a a quaint little church bulletin yeah there's uh there's pageantry there's a story sure there's a calendar read um and so it sort of ended up Or it began with this idea of the form that the ritual takes, but the content where I have found my most meaningful spiritual purpose was through art making. Right. So I want. So then that begs the question: What is your? uh, Do you have any religious background in your upbringing that sort of showed you how that works? Did you go to church and did you see that stuff? Well. so interestingly, I my parents were both agnostic, mm-hmm. essentially. And we went to Sunday school when I was young, young, like five, you know, six, seven. You grew up in, in the high desert of California? I grew up in Lancaster, yeah, in the Mojave. Lancaster, yeah. But we lived in Saudi Arabia for two right. years. Right, I heard that. That's, that's wild. And, and there was one of the things that was very social was... Sunday school. Christian Sunday school yeah. in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, because we lived in this expat community. and Your father was a spy or an assassin. <laughs> yeah. I forget. <laughs> I can't talk about that. Yeah. No, he was a pilot for Lockheed. Oh, got it. And the, and the Saudi Arabian royal family had bought this fleet of jets that my father knew how to fly. Wow. So when they bought these jets... The Bin Ladens. <laughs> well, the funny thing is... I, this sounds so crass, but I do think they're all related. They are. You know, I mean, I know for a fact the Saud family, right? Yeah, yeah. Ibn Saud. Anyway, they 
when they bought these jets, they didn't have anyone to fly them. So they contracted all these Lockheed pilots mm. to come and fly. So my dad flew these planes and we wow. all, my family all moved there for two years. So Which is seven to nine? Five to seven. Five to seven. Okay. So I did have, I had a little Sunday, I had a little, uh, you know, Sunday school background. But then when I was 12, I became fascinated with church and I started going to church on my own. Oh, no like, way. by myself. Wow. With, I had friends. In Lancaster. Me. Yes. Okay. It was, you weren't pushed by like parents or anyone. No, my parents didn't come. Right. They were not involved. Okay. And I was really fascinated by this. I was fascinated by the outfits, by the music, by the community, by the shared ritual, like the kneeling and praying and the recitation and the people who knew the call and response by heart. And I was just like, what is this? You but know? did you have like a religious feeling? Like were you, no. were you feeling the no. fire of And Jesus? I've written no? a story about this okay. because for me, it was the forms. This is... Me saying this now, yeah. I'm in my 50s. Yeah. I didn't know this when I was 12 right. and started going to Episcopal Church every Sunday. For me, the... this whatever, I'm going to say it. The God was in the elements of yeah. the ritual. It was in the people. It was in the fact that we were all gathering. The fact that we're all sitting facing the same direction. We're all singing the music together. The fact that there was meditation. The fact that there was music. Like, all of that stuff. And not surprisingly, I ended up living a life of theater making. Those were the elements that hooked me. And in fact, I remember being bothered by the fact that the first time I went to church and I knelt next to this woman, I can still see her face. I've no idea what her name was, but she started to pull the thing out and kneel. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to pull the thing out. And I kneel. And I was like, nothing's happening. <laughs> Is something supposed to be happening? You know, when I close my eyes. Like, I right. didn't know, and I well, didn't have anybody I have to... news for you. Yeah. Nothing was happening. <laughs> Probably about 95% of the people there. Exactly. <laughs> but this is so fascinating to me because I had, a, I had a period in my life when I was fully into God, like fully religious, Christian, going to church, really feeling the fire, feeling the, the Jesus and everything. Um, but one of the main things that got me there was music. Of I course. wanted to be the guitar player and the Bible study and... and <laughs> Music and religion are like inextricably linked oh, yeah. and art as well. It's like, it's so, it's so, it makes so much sense yeah. that this would happen to you. Like you, you, you wanted that, that religious experience that everyone kind of wants, but, but a lot of people who are rational and, and secular don't want the supernatural yeah. mythology of it. Well, you don't yeah, need in it. a way, it's, you know, the sort of shorthand is well, for Secret Cities, it's like worship without dogma. Right. Because something I found out after I started the Secret City, this woman was like, I want to go to lunch with you and we're going to have a conversation. She had come to one of our services. Anyway, you know Maslow's hierarchy, right? No, I don't. What's that? My, Maslow's hierarchy of need. I think there's seven of them, and the top one is food, and the second mm. one is shelter, and the third one is a sense of belonging. Sure, of course. Which is community, yeah, essentially. It's huge. And so I, I have operated with the belief that worship, the idea of sharing an adoration of something, is actually 
in in us yeah it is in our dna it is in our we have evolved to have that ability sure. and that desire but that could be sitting and watching them play it could right? be being really into the royal family it could yeah, be there's so I many mean, ways it, exactly. it gets you know expressed and, in exactly. our current society or you know well whatever. and for me i realized where it was most found most often and most purely is in art and performance absolutely that there is a kind of worship that can happen that really transforms people and gives people's lives meaning the part where it goes off the rails for most people is the judgment and the rules so what i i want to ask you is when you're 12 did you start to see that where like you're doing something wrong with your life there's something wrong with you don't do this don't don't think that did that did that come into it at all i mean i i I think probably where I felt freaked out was in the performance of how I was supposed to appear. I was an outsider anyway, though. I was a little gay boy, 12 years old, going yeah. to church by myself. And yeah. It was like, you know, I was welcomed and people liked me, but I was aware that I was an outsider. Were you Were you like out at that point? And no, Did people no, know? No, you just no. knew and it was like... did okay. I mean, I don't know that I... I I can't remember the chronology, but sometime mm-hmm. around there, I had a sexual experience that, you know, I probably began to understand that I was gay, but I, I didn't, I didn't feel it as a moral, I didn't have a moral crisis. Okay. Well, I had good. a, <clears throat> oh, this is really fascinating. I was aware that I don't fully belong here because I don't believe I don't understand what the cosmology of this place is Mm -hmm. and I don't believe it but I was very intrigued by it so that's interesting so you didn't feel the intense judgment of like you know you're the wrong you're the wrong sexual orientation. You're not going to get to heaven. Like, I mean, you, I had, you didn't get that far into it. It sounds like I didn't get that far into yeah. it. I mean, I had those feelings, you know, from my just growing up yeah. and being a human in a middle class, you know, suburban town. Yeah. Son of parents who weren't terribly sophisticated in that huh. way. And so I had those feelings, but I didn't feel like when I went to the church that I, I don't recall that feeling. It wasn't like I had a moral, like, oh, I'm a bad person. I was fascinated by it. I may have already believed I was a bad person. I guess that's what I mean. And you, this was a Presbyterian church, or what was Episcopal. it? Episcopal. Oh, Episcopal. So yeah. I don't know how, I grew up going to Presbyterian church, and it's not that big on, like, pageantry and, yeah. and wow, fabulousness yeah. factor. But I know there's some churches that are just, especially now with all the technology and the... They're fully putting on a massive show because they know that that's what gets people there. I mean, spectacle. Yeah, spectacle. That's why you have a scenic designer, a set designer when you're putting on a play. Like, you know. It's also why so many people who go on to be really successful singers come from like the gospel tradition. You know, there's that's where they're learning how to. Yeah, and understanding performance. Yeah, yeah. So, like that whole. I mean, this was not a high, I would not say this was high church, but it was proper Episcopalian. And, you know, Episcopalian is 
essentially Catholicism without a Pope, right? Right. So there were the smells and the bells. You have and, the incense. Yeah, the, yeah. What is it? Mitre? You yes. Know, the thing. And swinging with the, the smoke. Swinging and the, and the altar boys. And I went to that one time. I went to, I was invited. I was totally freaked out. I was like, this is way more. <laughs> this is like this is like led zeppelin and i was used to like donnie and marie you know <laughs> it's like gnarly with the i with know the smoke <laughs> it's that thing when you, were you a kid when you when that happened yeah i was scared which it's is i've talked a lot a about kid, this on right? this on this podcast where i think a lot of good musical experiences especially your first ones are a little scary yeah and that's the same thing with this church they're trying to scare you a little bit yeah. for sure it's a pageant this is like, here's the smut, here's the incense. Maybe it's going to remind you of like what hell is like if you don't get your <laughs> shit together. I don't know. Well, I also <laughs> think, you know, these are, whether the, this is achieved at any given service or not, you are dealing with altered states, right? Absolutely. Or you're referring to them. Right. And part yeah. of all that stuff is, you know, it's so funny you said like about being a, a priest is you're different you're the one you're right. different from all the villagers you're the you're one who's going to stand them. up yeah and tell the story you're the one who's going to wear the priestly robes and and then all of the all of the props and the mechanisms are they are supposed to be weird mm-hmm. right yeah. they're not like oh here's a fork they're <laughs> not for everyday use right. they're for the tools of ritual right it makes so much sense yeah and i want to go back to your theater background so you yeah you grew you moved to la at some point yeah did you go to la when did you say um i went to la proper i guess when i was 20 21 something like that i mean what happened just quickly what happened was the church awakening by the time I entered real adolescence, got hijacked by theater. And yeah. I was like, oh, this is really where it's at. Like, mm-hmm. you know, actually making the ritual. Yeah. Right. Being inside of it. Mm. So, uh, yeah. So I had a weird sort of late adolescence. I didn't go to college really. And I beat around and came back and forth to the desert town. And then I sort of landed in L.A. when I was, yeah, early 20s. And you were doing theater. Yeah, I did theater. And um, more like traditional theater. I started doing very, you know, because I came from this real sort of, you know, a kind of square suburban background, you Mm -hmm. know. My idea of being in the theater was, I'm going to make musicals, (laughs) you know. I'm going to like, I didn't. I had no understanding of what else there was in the theater. Yeah. So it was like, oh, you want to be in a play? Do, you know, and it mm-hmm. took me, um, I would say, five, six years to really begin to have that break apart and realize that, oh, there was a lot more to be had. And How did you discover, like, experimental theater and things that are more um, on the edge? Uh a lot of, I mean, a lot of factors came into that. Um, I think, obviously, living in Los Angeles, being exposed to a much richer cultural, you know, landscape, beginning to see work. It was a time, this would have been the late 80s, mm-hmm. so there was, like, performance art was a huge deal, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, the barriers of sort of well-made art versus 
you know, the sort of destruction of that was very much happening. And then... Did you get involved with like a theater group? Well, yeah. After a while, uh, what happened, I went to... Have you ever heard of the Radical Fairies? No, but I like that name. Yeah. <laughs> so I... Um, I, I, and I should say, I was, I was quite lost in my 20s. Mm-hmm. My 20s were a very difficult time for me. And so I would sort of burst into these explorations of great meaning, and then I'd kind of fall apart and regress, and I would move back home, and then I'd go back out again. And each time I felt like I got a little bigger in who I was mm-hmm. or the, the life I wanted to live. And then um, one of these forays was I was doing... I was beginning to do really sort of kind of queer work in East L.A., Silver Lake, Echo Park. And then I found out about this thing called the Radical Fairies, which Mm. is like essentially, you know, queers in the woods. Mm. like Queers in the woods. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wearing drag. It's an incredible sort of movement. And one of the founders harry hay he was part of the mattachine society mattachine society which was a sort of gay liberation society Mm. in the 20th century but he came up with this idea of the third sex third gender and he was really interested in like creating community around the idea that there are certain people who aren't one or the other Mm. and they would have these rituals out in the woods and i signed up to do that and then there was all this performance and then we were dressing up and putting on you know tibetan book of the dead rituals and putting on weird talent shows and sounds amazing that (laughs) truly i mean i know we use that cliche it changed my life yeah that it was i think 10 days in malibu canyon and but it it's totally so, changed me. It's so interesting to hear you say something about the third sex where now there's, uh, you know, we have to kind of make it a part of everyday parlance that there's a third sex or there's a third gender yeah. or there's a no gender. Yeah. We're trying to figure out what pronouns to use yeah. all the time. And um, it seems pretty normal at this point, especially for young people who are just existing in it. Oh, my God. But it had to be so much more advanced than yeah. we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at what point did you... I remember when you just think Christy and the No-Nos. Now, was yeah. that much later or was that um, around that it time? It was later. Uh, so what happened, I came back from that weekend and then I was like... It's sort of like The Wizard of Oz. I went from the black and white life mm-hmm. into the light, Technicolor life yeah. that I then entered. And the work I began doing was I'm much more radical and... I started doing this drag show in Highland Park at this little theater. This woman was like, hey, do you want to do this show? And we did that. So immediately, you know, the power of drag, especially then, I sort of became ID'd as a drag queen. And I was like, I'm an actor. Mm. Anyway, I got sort of jumped into the actor's gang. Oh, cool. And that that experience was really formative and has impacted the rest of my work since oh, fantastic. then. Because it's, com- it's based on Commedia dell'arte and it's very heightened states. It's highly theatrical. And that is where I met our dear mutual friend, Fred Cassidy. Oh, great. At the Actors Game. Yeah, because he had done a musical with Tracy Young and she saw me and was interested in me and asked me if I'd do a benefit and said, would you put a band together? Was so that Hysteria she, that he did? Yeah. Okay, I remember that yeah. very well. And she yeah. introduced Fred and me, and oh, we put a band together. 
So our first band was born out of that. Oh. And that was Chris Wells and the Highballs. And so okay. that was Fred, me. <laughs> um, and we did these big Bacchanalian party celebrations. So you were really working, you were working up to the same, you've been on this trip yeah, for a long time. Yeah, it's funny because yeah. the show you came to at New Year's, that experience is very much harkens back to those shows that I did with Fred, those early shows. Okay, so where it's more music, it, yeah. it's, it's all it's music heavy. Yeah. And it's a concert. Yeah. The Silver Spaceship was the one I yeah, saw. Yeah, Silver Spaceship. Fantastic. I am a big, weak man. couple of years um i wanted to make an original show and so fred and i had kept working together but then we wrote this um we wrote this sort of what i call a buddhist pop opera and it was in response to laura nero's album gonna take a miracle which i just became enamored with and uh, is that what christian the no knows was that was the yeah, pop opera yeah. yeah and it was performed oh yeah, yeah we did it, it a, all over la yeah and um, it was great, and uh, it's one of my favorite things I ever made. Um, I want something to last. Hold me, baby, don't turn me loose, cause I'll say. Yeah, we made a record. Fred made the record. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it was yeah, incredible. I remember that. Yeah. And, and then, then point, shortly after, I, I moved to New York. When did you make Liberty? Was that in New York? Oh, no, I did that. The Actors Gang. That was amazing. I mean, I, I didn't see it, but yeah. I, just reading about it, it seems really... Yeah. Wow, so, you really did your homework. I did a little research, you did. Chris. <laughs> I did, uh, yeah, I was... Talk about Liberty. Well, it's interesting know. that, you know, you're, the focus on politics, art and politics mm -hmm. is... I so by this time I was maybe 31 and I started to have a more of a sense of a political understanding of the world and um I should mention that I grew up in a republican household and, mm -hmm. and in my senior year of high school I in my debate class for government class I was debating pro Reagan 
And um, you were pro Reagan. I yeah. was pro Reagan. You were the pro Reagan. Uh, so were you into Reagan? Was, was that your position? As oh, totally. You were Republican back then. Yeah, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah, you know, it that's was so a performance. Yeah. And then I was so this accepted. Eighty four like or something. 80, 81, 82. Oh, 81, 82, Yeah. And uh, I was so. accepted to Boys State, and I went to this convention, and then I got to meet Maureen Reagan in Palm Springs. It was like Maureen was is his, his daughter. daughter. Yeah. yeah. I went to see uh, Ronald Reagan, a Ronald Reagan rally in uh, when I first got to college, but I would say that'd be '88. So he was running or something, or maybe he mm. was campaigning for someone else for Bush or yeah, something. Maybe. But my friends and I thought, let's put on a suit and go to a Republican <laughs> rally. Was it we done were kind with of irony? Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I I didn't have irony about it. I wasn't. It was a. It was very much a performance. My parents were into him. My grandmother yeah. was really into him. He was, you know, he was he was compelling and had like this. He was compelling, and I didn't really understand what, what the Republican Democrat meant. Right. I had no. I was so. All this is to say, by the time I'm 30 in LA, you know, doing somewhat radical theater, you're not I'm, so into Reagan anymore. No, <laughs> no, and especially after I I was blessedly sort of. Um, unscathed personally by the AIDS epidemic, but I was, mm. and after I'd gone to the radical fairies, I'd also begun to have a political awakening of like, you know, Queer Nation was starting and ACT UP was happening already. And so I began to have an understanding of society and political awakening. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did that inform, so was there a stance of kind of, I have to make a stand. I don't have to just entertain. I'm trying to. Yeah. So, change stuff here yeah and so liberty was born out of this like a real question like why is theater not directly political like what is there's a sort of like oh agitprop and real heavy-handed political messaging is really frowned upon in, is it was it i mean i i felt like it's a hard thing to make it's a hard thing to make art that has a politic absolutely right it's yeah. really hard it's and like I what think we're talking about with Sinead like yeah you you sort of have to make it first somehow you got to entertain people somehow yeah or and get people there I think if it's going to be successful you have to be really really fucking talented yeah I mean <laughs> you have to be smart and you have to be talented mm -hmm. and if it's good you have to have real chops and it has to be it has to work. Yeah. Um, it can't just be a screen. Rounding you on the head. Right? Yeah. It has to good. be seductive. And yeah. it has to have heart. And it has to be emotionally compelling. And um, so I didn't see much of that at the time. So Liberty was, you know, grew out of this question like, what, what would it look like to make a play, a one-person play about what I felt were real American values of freedom and the Bill of Rights mm. and the idea of personal freedoms. And the story broadly told is it's about a, a young boy who wants to grow up and be the next Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and so, um, and at the same time, it's like two stories told simultaneously. Uh, the Statue of Liberty is also missing so this idea of aspiring toward an ideal of freedom or the ideals of freedom and at the same time this loss of 
the ideals. Yeah. And uh, so those two kind of themes weaving together in a, in a parable, really, like a theatrical parable. So the idea that you, you know, in that play, there's uh, you're, you're in, I think you're in drag and you're, you know, yeah. some, some of the stuff is a, a reaction to trying to express like activism from a gay standpoint or something. Uh-huh. I, I feel like I can't say this without maybe stumbling on my words, but is there a, is there any part of you that sees as like gay culture gets, gets mainstreamed that annoys you where you're like, this is, <laughs> I have nothing to fight against anymore. Or well, they're getting it wrong. A totally the latter. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, yeah. especially when I was a little younger and a little more rowdy. Yeah. You know, the, the, I mentioned Queer Nation a few minutes ago. Yeah. The, the tagline I remember from those times was gay liberation, not assimilation. Interesting. And the idea yeah. of like, I mean, I remember very clearly when the human rights campaign, you know, that organization with the equal sign was really the driver behind the gay right, the gay marriage movement. Yeah. And when they first appeared on the scene, it was enraging. It was like, are you serious that we're going to make married? Yeah, we're (laughs) going to make our really driving issue the fact that we could get married. And yeah. I've, and the funny I thing, I am why, now though, married. You are married now. Yeah. It, which is, but the there are a lot of benefits that come with being married that why shouldn't you have them if you want them? Well, yes. Know? And and I'm very, that's why I say when I was a little younger and I'm maybe a little more, you know, uh, you know, a little more. More of a radical fairy. I was more of a radical <laughs> fairy <laughs> and also more of a like, you know, uh, reactionary and mm-hmm. like. Judgy, oh yeah, you know, yeah. uh, About it's like Pete Buttigieg. That's what I was just going to talk about. Oh, it drives me nuts. He's the kind of fag that I just loathe. And (laughs) and even saying that, I'm like, I'm being horrible. I'm like, why can't he? It's like feminism. He should be liberation means this gay guy can be whatever kind of gay he wants. Yeah, but you know, he's not my kind of gay. Right. So what is he? That what is it that bugs you about him? I mean, well, politically, yeah, he is, you know, the fact that he, you know, he's really into religion. Yeah, I know. And he's really into the military. I know. Those and those are his messages. Me and, you know, it's like Fran Lebowitz once said, she's like, I thought being gay meant you didn't have to worry about getting married or going to the military. Exactly. It's like, you know, back right. in the day, it meant like, well, you are not allowed to do those things, but it also meant. You don't have, those things are not your concern. You know what it is? He's, he's wearing straight face. He's totally wearing straight face. He's also <laughs> wearing like. Did I make like, that term up? Straight face? Um, I don't know. <laughs> but he's also, yeah, he is performing such assimilated gayness. Uh, but listen, that might just be who he is and that's fine. He's a really mainstream kind of dude and he like. He really, for some reason, wanted to join the military, and for some reason, he's religious. I mean, you know, you, know? you could really pick it apart. And apparently, the the military thing was a total ploy to for his political career. Sure, he didn't even really serve. I think he kinda enrolled how, for like six months or whatever. Kind of how Obama pays lip service to religion, which drives me insane. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't think you know. But whatever. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. never believed it. God yeah. bless America. All that stuff it makes me want to barf. But, yeah. Um, but so 
so not to just hammer on Buttigieg too much, yeah. but it's the more the big thing is like, um, what does that do for you know the struggle or whatever? It's kind of like okay, so if you want to be in mainstream and you want to be the acceptable gay guy, you got to be this super cleaned up, polished guy, right? Well, that's that the story of America. It's yeah. like if you want to be black and successful, the, you know, you have to be three times as competent as the mediocre white person, right? right? Like Obama again. Yeah, if yeah. you want to be a successful. I guess gay the first successful gay presidential candidate mm-hmm. you have to be I mean I'm amazed at how many people are responding to him and I'm also I'm also trying I hope when people hear this or even when you hear it I also am amazed and I think it's beautiful that we have gotten to a point right. where this is possible and this is happening right so it's complicated. It's right? really positive in one way. And it's, it's very positive. Yeah, it's expanding the the playing field. Um, yeah, we all know that what politics requires is a real leveling out and a real ironing of of anything that is uh, a, a sort of non mainstream idea right. or value, right? right. So uh, why wouldn't that happen to the gay candidate as well? Right. I get kind of hypnotized by the way he talks and he's, you know, a good speaker. He, he is a good this, speaker. But I, he kind of bores me now. Yeah. I'm on to someone else now. <laughs> Who are you on to? Um, well, last night was the debate. Oh, my and God. And I watched it. And I, I've always loved Elizabeth Warren. I think she kind of got shafted. I also like Bernie. Yeah. I like those, too. And um, they're, the mo- they're the most exciting to me. I, agree. I will vote a thousand percent for whoever gets to be the candidate. I will back them up. I will make sure everyone... If it's Mayor Bloomberg, I you won't believe say. how much I love Bloomberg <laughs> once he's the candidate. I'll like, you know, I'll sell my car and go campaign for him. But right now we can be more choosy. Yeah. You know, everybody vote for who you like. That's what I say. Vote for who you I like. I agree. That's why it's democracy, so to speak. The thing I'm finding particularly both enjoyable and irksome is the extent to which... The Democratic kids want everyone to get along. Yeah. And it it drives me nuts. Right. I'm like, would you shut up about, don't say bad things about those people. Other The Republicans are going to hear that. I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding? Yeah. They're going to hear it anyway. They're, they're, they're all locked already. and loaded. They're like, locked and loaded for whoever. It's not like, oh, don't say that thing about stop and frisk because then it's going to be used against... It's like, it should be used against him. Yeah. We should know everything. And I thought last night was thrilling. I'm like, yes, because part of the problem is the left is has caved. The right. left has caved in the last 40, 50 years. Right. And has become so, like, capitulating to, you know, centrist and right-wing ideas. Absolutely. I'm like, yeah, let's have a fucking fight. Fight for leftist values. Yeah. Fight for them. Yeah, fight for them. the power has become so solidified in the presidency, right? Right. And this is is one of the problems we're having. But it's not just the Republicans. Like, we increased the power for Obama. Right. We increased the power for Clinton. So, Trump is a brilliant performer, and he inhabits that role brilliantly. He just is truly the 
you know, he's the alcoholic dad at the party and everybody is talking about how, how he's misbehaving. Right. And yet, you're right. The real fight is in the Senate, right? The real sure. fight is in small town politics. It's in yeah. the House and, you know. Last night I felt like Bernie Sanders came across for the first time as like the calm voice of reason. I know that mm. sounds strange because he's always yelling and screaming, but he seemed like a guy who kind of like could get all the kids to sh- like <laughs> chill out and like work together because uh-huh. he seems like he has this sort of overarching vision. I never thought he did, but it, he, he struck me that way last yeah. night. I also think if he gets the candidacy, he will modify his message or he'll, I think he'll bring people in. It's such a dogfight. They're all just bashing each other and it's like, who will be the last one standing? Yeah. It's wild. But he is still the guy who I think has the most, if he can keep it up, Bernie, he is still the guy who will excite a huge turnout. I do too. I mean, you know why I think that? Because what I didn't realize last time was that he would have won. I was terrified of him last time and I, since then, it's kind of a cliche, but there's all these Trump people who really liked Bernie. Yeah. They would have voted for either one. My friend Kelly Parker in Woodstock, she's a wonderful friend, wonderful person, but she is incredibly, I would say, politically savvy. And she's a huge Bernie supporter. And she said this after 2016. She was like, you can't beat a populist without another populist. Right. And I think there's incredible truth to that. And I think that's why there's this crossover, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's, he's in a, this is how horrible thing to say, but maybe he's kind of the left's version of a Trump. Well, I went to a wedding in upstate uh, before the election and I got into a political discussion at a bar. um, It was in Wasaic. Um, which is oh, like yeah. over there, yeah. yeah. And I got into polit- political discussion with like a twenty-year-old or something, and he was really into Trump. And I, I was like, "What? That's so bizarre." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I really like Trump. I think he's great. My f- dream ticket would be Trump and Bernie." And I was like, <laughs> "What? What?" Wow. And at the time, I just had to walk away from him because I was like, "There's something wrong with your brain." <laughs> Or, and you clearly, but what it is, is he didn't really know how politics worked and wasn't really that, that concerned with left and right. He just knew these two badass white dudes were there to fight and kick ass and change things. So that's what it is. And I think if you are young and don't have an understanding of, Mm -hmm. you know, the two party system for better or for worse, you're, you're just sensing that these two guys want to tear it apart. Yeah. And that could be exciting, you know? Yeah. Peer Pressure Podcast is brought to you by Cats Who Can Type. I think it's important, you know, when we talk, when we were talking at first about the secret city and this idea of worship without religion, it's been really important to me to not be anti-religious but in fact, just to be non-religious. And the work with The Secret City, that's been really crucial because in fact, over the years, people of all stripes and all kinds of beliefs come. The the tent, I yeah. say metaphorically, is large enough that 
And I hope that the events are large enough that you can come in and believe whatever you want and still have a transcendent experience. And that is what is really that I, I, that I love makes that. a lot of sense to me. And I understand the difference because a lot of people who have been through the religious uh, washing machine uh. are really allergic to it. Uh, that might be my case. And so they want to know that it's going to be done in the right way. And I think you present it in such a positive way where you're not trying to push away people who might be looking for that kind of um, experience. Yeah. Um, and it's also not uh, weirding people out if they feel really gross about religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you know, at a it's certain a point, fine line to yeah. tread. I mean, there are some people who are like, I have, n I have no interest in anything that smacks of any kind of group ritual sort of prescribed sitting facing the same direction thing. Whatever. Yeah, you but know, those people probably still go to concerts. Of course. And they might right? even do yoga. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> you know? But the thing, something happened a couple years into it. I started realizing that, oh, this art project that was examining what would church be if it was made by and for artists, suddenly it occurred to me that it had turned into a church. Hmm. Meaning there was a, a stalwart community and these people were coming for sustenance. They weren't coming for God per se. They were coming for the worship. Yeah. Right? And then um, another thing that I find interesting is over the years, we've had a bunch of children of... Um, clergy hmm. like a lot of kids who grew up either you know presbyterian minister or daughter of a rabbi or um i think in some ways the work of the secret city is healing it heals some of that like you could actually have what you loved about belonging to a spiritual community without being told you're a piece of shit or that you're doing something wrong like you don't have to make that bargain that's right. fantastic. That's a really valuable thing yeah. to offer to people. Let's jump into this other song that you Great. picked that I'm really excited to hear. Yeah. It's um, Les McCann and Eddie Harris, and it's Compared to What. Here it goes. I love the lie and lie the love. I'm hanging on, we push and shove. Possession is the motivation that is hanging up. The goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut. Everybody now trying to make it real compared to what? Come on, baby. children are killing frogs poor dumb rednecks rolling along tired old ladies kissing the dogs i hate the human love of that stinking mud i can't use it I'm trying to make it real compared to what come on baby 
just what it's for. Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason. Half of one doubt, they call it treason. We're chicken feathers all the way out one day. God damn it, I'm trying to make it real compared to what. Sunday sleeping not trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what.
I mean, the fact that it's a live performance, first of oh, all. Oh, yeah. Imagine being at that show. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I knew this song through by uh, from Roberta Flack. Yeah. The first version I knew was hers. Right. And because uh, I, I have a major thing for female vocalists. So uh, I'm a big fan of hers. And I love that. I think it's on her first album, First Take. Anyway, I didn't know this version for years and then the first time I heard this, I was like, what? Yeah. Um, but I guess he, I think Les McCann had recorded it first. Oh, really? Yeah. Who wrote and it? Did Les McCann write no, it? No, this guy, um, Gary, maybe Gary McDaniel or something. Okay. But I just looked this up. Les McCann was Roberta Flack's manager oh. when she made that album. Oh. And he must have said, hey, I have this song that I recorded. You should do it. And oh. then... However, like three years later, this version came out and it exploded. Amazing. Yeah. So there's so much going on with this song. Yeah. Um, religion is a big thing. Yeah. And there, war. And one thing that I personally like about this song, it seems like Les McCann's not really that into people licking their dog's face, <laughs> which I'm not either, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he threw that in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pro cat song, maybe, or just anti dog. It's anti dog. Yeah. Anti dog love. Literally, he has a line about that. What is it? I gotta see it. It's so funny. Um, he goes, "I hate the human love of that stinking mutt. Yeah. I can't use it." Well, tired old tired old lady kissing dogs. <laughs> I, I hate the human love of that stinking mutt. <laughs> What is he saying there? I I mean, as I said, <laughs> you know, before, uh, uh, one of the reasons I picked this song to listen to, I love that it's just this amazing examination of hypocrisy and mm-hmm. and the idea of make it real, but compared to what? Like, I think the intention might be in the lyrics to say. I'm a totally disenfranchised black person. Mm-hmm. I'm totally marginalized. Marginalized. I'm underemployed. I might. I think you know the guy who wrote it may have had a drug problem. Yeah. And the message to him is like, get your shit together. Like, yeah. Get real. And he's like, wait a minute. What is real? What is real when you compare my sins to? Lyndon Johnson's sense right. of the Vietnam War. Right. So what does it mean to make judgments about how people are living? You know, it's like last night on those, or it's like Bloomberg who think, he said in that debate last night when somebody said, you know, about his billions of dollars, how'd you get that? And he said, well, I worked for it. And the idea that people who are working two, three jobs because they're not getting a living wage and they're you know they're not making enough money to keep their lives together the hypocrisy i guess that arises from capitalism it arises from racism it arises from all of the isms and uh and just the fact that it's this incredible groove and it's just got this exhilaration in it and that's an example of a really great political work of art right right exactly that's what i was gonna say that gets right back to what we were saying like that's a party you want to be at 
but he's saying it so clearly. Totally. And people are like cheering over in oh, certain sections yeah. too when he's talking about falling asleep at church. Yeah. People are cheering. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, I want to know who was at that show. Oh my what God. What his audience was. Right. And there's, what I don't know, what year was that recording? I think it's 69 maybe. So the And it's, was it at Montreux? Is that right? The, the political um, just moment was so strong there that it yeah. was like, we're going to have this party. We're all talking. We're all on the same page. We know exactly what you're talking about in yeah. this song. And it's a party. and We can all get behind it. Yeah. I love that. It also reminds me, you know, that, you know, the record, the classic recording of Mississippi Goddamn that Nina Simone does. Mm-hmm. And that's a live recording. And you yeah. can hear on the major punchlines of that song, you can just hear the audience. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, like, there's such responsiveness in the recording. And I... Right. I mean, it is, it, you know, you asked me this about when we were talking, you know, about gayness and politics and mainstream. And it is interesting. We live in this time where all of the move, the major movements, in a way, it's not that all the issues have gone away, but the power of these sort of sing, single focused movements has been dis, dispersed. Yeah. Right. And so it's sometimes hard to find the politic in, right? It, I don't think those expressions are as clear as they were. Like during the civil rights movement, it's like this incredibly focused uh, movement. And same with women's rights and gay rights. And like all of the fights now are, they're all interwoven and some of them are submerged and some of them have been hijacked. It's just... Did it, you watch the Super Bowl? No. Um, I watch it for the ads because the ads are such an interesting way to see what mainstream, the highest level of mainstream commercial yeah. corporate society, what they can sell, what they can pass off as political. And they tried pretty hard. There's a lot of, we are all together. We're all unified. This very, very subtle uh-huh. whitewashing. And then, of course, Trump bought bought this big bullshit ad mm. which he ran during the yeah. Super Bowl buying all these African Americans to say how awesome Trump is <laughs> um, really awesome but um, but I mean like I feel like the moment is here because it's so extreme and people know that it has to change but how is it being expressed in the mainstream I don't know sometimes it is sometimes it's not but the mainstream is not really where exciting things happen anyway you're right. Not now. It's on the fringes I mean, in the art world and in the well, music world. But it's interesting because you hear this, and this was a huge hit, right? Mm-hmm. And it broke really wide, and I think it became, it was a gold record. It's like... I mean, it's so amazing if you think about it. It's like the president's got his war yeah. and all this stuff. Like, they're, they're not sugarcoating it, you know? I love yeah. it. I love it. I mean, but then again, people were going to war... They were going to Vietnam and dying by the thousands. I think it's a fascinating time. I think there's a real incredible progress and these incredibly exciting changes that we're living through, right? And, of course, there's this horrible regressive pull to not relent anything, not let go of any of the power. Uh, But... I do think overall we live in a far more conservative time than when this song came out. Yeah, and I think the main issue is that we all are pretty comfortable. 
And so for things to like really change, we have to be a little less comfortable. Yeah. Everyone has to be a little less comfortable. But I want to get back to, so what I want to know what the next thing is for you. So you sort of took a break um, with uh, the Secret City. Yeah, we're on a we're on a six month transition. Uh, so the Secret City is now a nonprofit arts organization. It's my, you know, it's a full time job for me. We're in the middle of a six month programming break. Yeah, but there will be shows coming up. Oh yeah, we're working on. Uh, we have a big summer, what we call the Art Revival in Woodstock. Yeah. It's the last weekend of July. And it's a town-wide celebration of art and community. So there's house events, there's things in different clubs, and there's the big show on Sunday at the Bearsville Theater, and there's a town-wide procession. Is that with and, the Silver Spaceship? Uh, no, but okay. that band, all, all of those people are in the band. And you're performing there. Yeah, show. the Sunday thing is the big service okay, cool. that I will oh, host. Oh, fantastic. And, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So end of July in Woodstock. Yeah. But so I just want to kind of close it out by trying to encapsulate it. So the world of art is so connected to commerce. Yeah. And so it's like, how do you uncouple that? Like, how do you get meaning to be its own thing outside of selling? I mean, we live, this is the water we swim in. It's capitalism, right? So... Well, you know, it occurred to me when I lived in L.A. and I did a ton of theater. And in many ways, I considered myself a very successful theater artist. I made no money. Right. My, I was, I had a hustle. I had so many hustles. Mm -hmm. You know, I might get like $200 to do a reading or, but, you know, I, I, and L.A. was a little simpler then before I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. You could scrape an income together yeah. by freelancing and working a bunch of hustles, a bunch of gigs. But the reason I say that is, you know, it's not ideal maybe, but I think there's a lot to be said for artists who don't have like the idea of what's the that beautiful word that gets so amateur. Hmm. The real definition of an amateur Which is, is someone actually who loves love. their yeah. work. I know that's right in French amateur means a person who loves something yeah it doesn't mean non-professional exactly yeah and so people who have the freedom to be amateur yeah I think in some ways it is the best a best relationship with art and creativity is if you're like you know it was one of my one of my reasons I started the secret city is because I wanted a job that I believed in and I loved and that it would also free me up to do my work without having to hustle for a day job. I think, you know, the way politics are, are heating up right now, everyone is realizing that um, healthcare is a, is a right. Um, Huge. And so I think that the next step after that is that art is something that everyone needs to live. And so the, as a society we need to we need to support our artists oh my god yeah i mean that's the logical conclusion i mean art is medicine healthcare is a right art and music are, <laughs> are a way to you know stay alive well it's like do you know the o positive festival in kingston no oh my god it's this really extraordinary festival that has been it's 10 years now in the in it's you know it's been running for 10 years but essentially 
the idea is that they curate all these bands and then they curate all these visual artists who are going to paint murals all over the old buildings. And in exchange for their participation, they get health care. Oh, no way. That's so there are all these like health care providers who volunteer. So you get so many visits based on how like uh, wow. Silver Sp- Spaceship performed at the last one in October and then everybody could get three treatments amazing so it's you like could a get barter acupuncture system. you could great. get there there was even a dentist you could go to the dentist you could I mean, there were all these offerings you, that you, get, you is, get your dental treatment on stage while you're performing <laughs> yes yes <laughs> it makes for more of a punk scene than <laughs> Well, that's great. Chris, thank you so much for talking to me about all this stuff. Also, I want to mention your, your ongoing radio show at Radio Kingston. Yeah, Radio every Kingston. Monday, the Secret City, uh, Secret, the Secret Secret City, City Radio Hour. Yeah. And it streams at RadioKingston.org, and all of the shows are archived, including the show with Pierre de Guyon. Which I had so much fun doing. Yeah. And so everyone, listen to that. And Chris, thank you Check so much out. for talking to me. Thank this you. This has been fantastic. Excellent. So right. glad to be here. Ciao. 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 All right, that was my conversation with Chris Wells. That was fun. I feel like we covered a lot of important stuff. Are we alone? Are we all one? I feel like we're on the same page, and I learned a lot from talking to him because I'm really interested in how he's bringing the sense of communion, community that we all have to a new place which is something really important I think we all need to do because the old models are broken, stale abusive (laughs) oppressive so let's worship the real gods of art and nature, that's what I'm into please go to thesecretcity.org to find out about what the Secret City is up to their events and concerts that's thesecretcity.org you can also go to pierredeguyon.com to find out about my upcoming concerts and all the different things I'm doing with my bands. You can also get music there and check out more information about this podcast, Peer Peer Pressure. Pressure. The sponsor for this episode is Cats Who Can Type. The theme music is Marchandise by Bad Reputation from the album Franglais, which is a cover of Merchandise by Fugazi. And once again, I have to ask you to please subscribe, interact with this. I always enjoy getting comments about these episodes. Go back in the archives. There's tons of great interviews and there will be more coming soon. And we're going to take it out with a little song by The Snow called All One, which I think really encapsulates also the idea that if you're looking for God, look inside yourself because we're all little tiny bits of God and We're all creative. We're all creating realities every day, just like the big bearded Santa Claus supposedly did 2,000 years ago. You passed into a gentle madness once. You turned the pain and sadness into something clean and funny, wise and sunny. So I bid you au revoir, à la prochaine, mes enfants.